Hi, to all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. I am glad to finally present our Hitchcock episode. As you might expect with a director like Hitchcock, there was quite a bit of audio to go through in order to deliver an episode that doesn't necessarily tread on the usual commentary and insight about the director that you might normally have seen or heard. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, as always, to our sponsor, Webster, the leading video review and collaboration app on the web. With drop-dead simplicity, exclusive Vimeo integration, and Adobe Premiere panel that allows you to upload directly from within Adobe Premiere and subsequently download comments back into Premiere, collaborating with clients and colleagues is not only easy, it's fun. Go to whipster.io and use the offer code RADIOFILMSCHOOL, all one word in all lowercase, and get your first seat for only $13 a month. We thank Whipster for their support. Take one, take ten, Marker. Action. I remember I I had never heard about this movie Psycho. And my mom made a joke to my dad about Psycho at some point because we stayed in some like really crummy place. We were in Thailand at the time. And I asked my dad what Psycho was. And my dad proceeded to give me a rundown of what the story of Psycho was, retelling it over the course of like an hour. And I did not see the movie until I was probably, I want to say like 14 or 15. And I remember when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly, exactly what I imagined when my father told me it. Because Hitchcock creates such incredible characters, locations, and visuals that it sticks in your mind in a way that my dad, 20 years after the film had come out, 30 years after the film had come out, could retell it from his memory. And I could remember his retelling and then rewatch it and have the exact same experience that he'd had and I had had in my own memory. It's just, that's, that's something very few people can do and Hitchcock can give you that. That was movie critic, actress, and Collider TV Talk co-host Sasha Pearl Raver. The story she tells about watching Hitchcock's Psycho for the first time is a perfect introduction about one of the most celebrated and revered directors in the history of filmmaking. All season long, we've been following the theme of finding your voice as an artist and developing a signature style. There's probably few directors as associated with a certain style as Hitchcock. In fact, his style is so associated with his name, he is arguably the first director whose name is used as an adjective to describe a style. A thriller or horror film is praised by critics and fans if it's said to be Hitchcockian. Today on the show, we're going to look at Sir Alfred Hitchcock, and I hazard a guess that you will learn some things about the British Altier that you never knew. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School, A Filmmaker's Journey. But uh, over here, this is the actual motel and the house from the movie Psycho. My first introduction to Hitchcock was aboard the Universal Studios tour in the mid and late 70s. A key part of that tour was visiting the old back lots of the studio. And one of the favorite stops was the set for the Bates Motel. Hold on a minute here. I 
I just saw somebody walk in there. I know if we should call security. Oh, it's okay. It's Norman Bates. He owns them. Wait a minute. He's got a body. The camera starts the shower scene. I wield the knife. The girl screams, but she sounded like a wounded hen. The camera stops. We try again. Now, as just the wee lad, I had no idea of the significance of the building I was seeing. All I knew is that apparently some famous scary movie was filmed there. I could care less, really. I just want to get to the fun parts of the ride, like when Jaws attacked the tram car or crossing that rickety bridge during the fake earthquake. It wouldn't be until my 20s that I truly appreciated Hitchcock and who he was, mainly because I had started learning about filmmaking and it was natural to study the masters. But I have to admit, when I first started learning the craft of filmmaking, I wasn't all too keen to learn about the likes of Billy Wilder or Kira Kurosawa or Charlie Chaplin or, yes, even Alfred Hitchcock. To be frank, I had the very mistaken impression that old movies would be boring. I wanted to study Tarantino and Spike Lee and Robert Rodriguez, young filmmakers who made a mark on the world as indie filmmakers. What could I possibly learn from old dead directors who made movies back in the olden days? And apparently, I wasn't the only one who felt like that. I was probably about 15, 16, I first saw Rear Window. That's my favorite. Yeah. And it was one of those things where I wasn't expecting anything profound from that movie because... That's Jeffrey Michael Bays, a filmmaker, a contributing writer to Movie Maker and No Film School, and creator of the YouTube series Hitch 20. It's a web-based documentary series that looks at the 20 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that are directed by Hitchcock himself. Jeff gathers video interviews from filmmakers and film historians from around the world to give their insight into specific episodes. I had the honor to be on one such episode. You can see it on the blog post for this episode of Radio Film School. Anyway, here's Jeff sharing his thoughts on his favorite Hitchcock film, 1954's Rear Window, which happens to be my favorite Hitchcock film especially in today's generation, there's a kind of a, an expectation that old movies are going to be dry and boring. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and sort of removed from modern pop culture, you know? And so that's what I expected. I didn't expect it to be anything. And then suddenly I was, uh, um, I realized that I was really involved in this story. You know, it just pulled me in somehow. And, um, felt so present in the moment uh, watching it. And that was something that I had never experienced with any other film before. And that fascinated me. Jeff's experience of watching Rear Window for the first time parallels mine. I first saw the movie at the old Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, California. I went pretty much as an obligation as a film student. They were having a Hitchcock festival that week, and a group of my fellow film students from De Anza College's film and TV program were going to check it out. And I must say, I was pleasantly surprised. I was literally on the edge of my seat in some places, and at one point I audibly gasped. I had always heard about Hitchcock being the master of suspense, but I had never personally experienced just how masterful he was until that evening. Rear Window instantly became my favorite Hitchcock film. And I'm not alone in that assessment. Right off the top of my head, it, I would say Rear Window. That's mine. Yeah. Yeah. That that Why? one's because it's so full of stories. That's the voice of Forrest Day, 
He's an indie filmmaker, editor, and host of the entertainment podcast Coffee Shop Conversations and the YouTube show Roll Tape. You know, you have your main story of uh, Jimmy Stewart looking out the window, and, and right off the bat, we learn his story without a word spoken. You know, the camera goes around, you, you see he's got a broken leg, then it pans to this a shot of a car crashing, flying at the cameraman, so we can assume it's him. So right off the bat, we get his story, why he's in this room, without a word being said. Mm -hmm. And then all the stories that are going on in each individual window, um, like little sub-stories. Like I said, I grew up in New York, and um, for most of my adult life, actually until two years ago, I never lived anywhere where somebody didn't even either live above or below me. Here's Sasha again whose favorite Hitchcock film is also Rear Window. So I'm very, very attuned to apartment life and what it feels to be a voyeur in an apartment. So that whole Greenwich Village setup and looking out into that courtyard felt very familiar and very recognizable to me. But I think the brilliance of Hitchcock is so beautifully illustrated in the way he takes a single location and makes it a million things. Wow. It's a place for romance. It's a place for suspense. It's a place where all of character can be revealed. That just like having Jimmy Stewart in that cast and the way Grace Kelly comes in in those Edith Head costumes, the sweep of it, the grandeur, just even the color of the white against her skin and like the way the satin falls. It all is so classically Hitchcock. I mean, the entire film was shot on a soundstage, and you know that, and that is obvious, but you never feel like you're in a phony place. It always feels visceral to the point of wanting to, like you said, gasp out loud and jump out of your skin. It's just, it's so brilliant. Brilliant is a word often used to describe Hitchcock as a filmmaker, and Sasha's reference to the set design and location of Rear Window gives a clue as to where he might have learned those sensibilities. It started well before Hitchcock's career as a director. Jeffrey Bayes takes us back to Hitch's beginnings. Yeah, he was a graphic artist, and in fact, um, this is one of the things that makes him unique um, as a director because he has this background in advertising. In fact, when he was 15, he started <laughs> in advertising. And it was actually um, a company called Henley's, uh, and they made electrical cable. And his job was to make brochures and newspaper ads and things like that to advertise something that's industrial cable. So he had to come up with creative ways to make that interesting. So he had this graphic uh, knowledge and this experience drawing and and doing typesetting and those sort of things. So that was uh, his uh, first job as a filmmaker. In fact, he left Henley's to uh, to work on these first films. And that's that was his job was just to sit down and and write out all these title cards. And it's funny, I don't ever think of classic old school Hollywood filmmakers of having one of having some other kind of, I guess, career before what they became famous for. But uh, it's fascinating to hear that, that he had done that um, before starting that. Do you mm -hmm. do you know offhand, like, was specifically that got him interested to become a, a filmmaker? 
Well, I guess it was just by chance because uh, Paramount had opened this studio just down the street, essentially. And so uh, he would go down and watch them. <laughs> he would watch them shoot scenes when they were shooting outside. And uh, he was just sort of drawn to that. And uh, he went to plays. He liked to go to the theater and watch British plays, which at the time um, they were uh, all about murders and, you know, uh, uh, dead bodies and that sort of thing. So that was really where he got his <laughs> right. first uh, influence in that sort of in that sort of story that would appear in most of his works <laughs> uh, throughout his career. He was very detailed in his set design he was actually we talked about him being a title designer mm -hmm. before he was a director he was also a set designer before he was a director oh wow and he designed sets and furniture and costumes and things like that so he was very meticulous about getting the details right his ability to construct a scene, um, not only to compose shots. I mean, the the, comp the compositions of shots of Hitchcock shots are amazing, um, wonderful, innovative. That's my fellow indie filmmaker and podcaster Alex Ferrari, a twenty-plus year veteran in the industry, soon about to embark on his first feature film himself. He's also host of the wildly popular indie film website and podcast Indie Film Hustle. But the way he constructed scenes, the way he edited those scenes, it was so. And I hate to use the word clinical because they're not. There was a lot of emotion to it. But as you know, he storyboarded everything right. to an, to to the nauseum to the point where he never looked through the camera. He just shot and the rest is you – know, he just let them shoot. And he's like, I've already made the movie. I don't need to watch it. And then in <laughs> editing, he would just put it together. It was it was painted by numbers. Mind you, he creates the numbers. Um, but – that ability to construct scenes, I mean, if you watch, obviously, you watch the psycho scene, sequence, the, the shower sequence is, is probably some of the most, probably one of the top masterful sequences in film history, if not the biggest, you know, the, the, the best sequence ever edited, mm -hmm. you know, how a knife never touched the skin because he couldn't because of the, the ratings boards. There was no, you know, how he, he snuck around things. So like when he was shooting, you know, uh, uh, he was shooting, uh, you know, two stars, they couldn't kiss for more than five seconds. So he would shoot for four seconds, they would pull away, and then they would kiss again. He would just constantly be breaking the rules that way, you know, just to sneak around the censors and stuff. Alex referred to Hitchcock's meticulous nature as a director. Now, I had never known that about Hitchcock. Seattle Film Institute Executive Director David Shulman corroborates this aspect of Hitchcock's working style. He was, you know, known uh, for being meticulously, meticulously prepared. I mean, whether it's true or not, you know, one of the, you know, you know, Hitchcock used to say, I think about himself, is that by the time he got to the set, he was bored. You know, <laughs> no, that he, you know, if you look at the storyboards of his films, that he felt that intellectually, you know, he'd solved all the problems in the storyboarding process. And basically, uh, shooting the film was just a, uh, you know, just an exercise that he, you know, that he had to go, that he had to go through. I mean, you know, whether that's really, I mean, right. really true or not, who knows. But, right. but that, but that definitely is representative of his, his take on it. Because most of the work that I do is documentary in nature, I've never been one to storyboard. That and the fact that even my stick figures suck. That's one artistic talent where I am particularly lacking. 
So the idea of putting that much detail and attention to storyboards is very foreign to me. And some might make the case that that level of detail has its own downsides. I was reading recently um, uh, Andre Tarkovsky's Sculpting in Time, and he kind of criticizes Hitchcock a bit, saying, you know, if you, if you are going to plan everything out, then you kind of don't really allow, you, you know, you don't give the actors a nice space in which, within which to kind of develop their own feel for the story. So there's, you know, I guess it's horses for courses. That's the voice of British filmmaker and video essayist Adam Westbrook of Delve TV. Adam's video essays are about as meticulously planned as Hitchcock's films. Since starting 2014, six out of the eight he's made have garnered Vimeo staff picks, and collectively, all of them have been viewed over one million times. Be sure to check out the blog post for this episode to see some of his best work. Here, Adam shares some thoughts and insight into Hitchcock's meticulousness. Is that a word? Meticulousness? Meticulosity? Meticularity? Anyway, here's Adam. Um, But, you know, to his credit, I think Hitchcock... um uh, the one thing that's definitely true is that he always considered in a lot of detail what the audience were going to be thinking mm-hmm. at any given time. Yeah. Um, and in fact, that's something that's very nicely conveyed in the film they made, the biopic they made of him a few years ago with Anthony Hopkins. The climactic scene of the film is the premiere of Psycho. And um, Hitchcock himself doesn't go into the theatre to watch the film. He kind of stands out, he sort of lingers out in the hallway by the door to the cinema. And he's sort of peering by the door just as the shower scene, the iconic shower scene begins. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great because um, we see Hitchcock listening for, you know, the kind of eh, eh, eh noises as that kind of scene starts. And we hear the audience screaming. And Hitchcock starts, or Anthony Hopkins as Hitchcock, starts basically conducting with his hands. And every time he raises his hands up, the audience scream and... Um, every time it goes down, the knife goes in, and then he raises his hands up, and the audience scream again. And it's this lovely kind of um, demonstration of the fact that Hitchcock could basically play us like a violin. He knew exactly how to manipulate our emotions, and he knew exactly what we'd be thinking and how to use that to his advantage. Um, and this even shows up in there's amazing uh, so, uh, kind of psychological research where they've done MRI scans of people's brains as they're watching various films. Include, uh, they, I think the, the one I'm thinking of, they had um, these patients watching an episode of Hitchcock's Half an Hour mm-hmm. um, alongside um, a famous spaghetti western by Sergio Leone, I think, and then an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And they found that people's brains... Uh, reacted consistently when watching a hitch watching the Hitchcock film they they all fired certain neurons and chemicals at exactly the same time whereas the other films didn't really elicit such a coherent response and I think that's sort of testament scientific testament if there could be any to Hitchcock's ability to sort of yeah sort of um, you know play us like a puppeteer almost My interview with Adam was one of my favorite of the season, so rest assured you're going to hear from him again in our season finale. When we come back, we'll take a closer look at Hitchcock's ability to manipulate the audience, and we'll learn something about him that may be the biggest surprise of all. Stay tuned. 
One of the companies that has supported Radio Film School this season is the video review and collaboration site Whipster. One of the latest features of Whipster is seamless integration with Vimeo, integration that is exclusive to Whipster. Here's Whipster CEO and vlogger himself, Rollo Winlock, telling me why he thinks Vimeo chose Whipster for exclusive integration. When you look at across the range of apps that have been created to, to, to solve this problem of people working together on video and production, um, you, you have companies that are coming at diff, different angles. Our absolute focus has always been on making the, the simplest experience for a reviewer to give comments back to a creator. And that means making the app as simple as Facebook to use, as simple as Twitter to use, for somebody who, say, works in marketing or the CEO of a large company. Like, we have Rod Jury, the CEO of Xero, you know, a multi-billion dollar software company who's using Whipster every month for all their videos. And he logs in when he's at a hotel or he logs in when he's at the office or at the beach to make comments. And if we make it hard for him to just make a comment and he doesn't use it, then the whole of zero thousands of people don't use it. And so what, what Vimeo um, found with us was that we'd solved that problem, that really, really basic, huge problem of people who don't know much about video, which are the clients of video, working with people who know everything about video, which is the creator, and making those two people work together in the most simplest way possible. If you want to get in on the Whipster action and create a drop-dead simple process for sharing and receiving feedback on your videos with clients and colleagues, go to whipster.io. And when you use the offer code RADIOFILMSCHOOL, all one word, all lowercase, you'll get your first seat for only $13 per month. We thank Whipster for their support. Hello. Hello, Tom. I think Thorwald's left. I don't... That's a scene from the aforementioned Hitchcock favorite, Rear Window. In it, Jimmy Stewart's character, LB, answers the phone and starts talking to who he thinks is his friend, Tom, telling him what he thinks is happening with this suspected killer. Except, it's not LB's friend. The only thing he hears on the other side of the line is silence. And silence is also something we as an audience hear. There's no creepy music, just ambient sounds of the room in the city. That is, until we hear footsteps in the hall. I'm pretty sure this was one of the scenes where I found myself sitting on the edge of my seat that first time I saw this movie oh so many years ago. Hitchcock is raising his conductor's baton, and I'm responding just as planned. If you want to have the audience feel tense, what do you show and what do you hide? Here we have show regular and white slow motion pictures director Brandon McCormick. As I've mentioned before on the show, Brandon is a perpetual student of cinema, and he's such a fan of Hitchcock that a few years ago he wrote and directed a black and white homage called Fear Itself. Brandon's producing partner and composer Nick Kirk even created an original score that emulates the famous scores of Hitchcock's frequent co-collaborator Bernard Herrmann. Even the credit sequences were designed to imitate that iconic retro look of Saul Bass's work. So Brandon is intimately familiar with how Hitchcock operates. And I think Hitchcock was, the, was a master of knowing what to show and when and hiding information when it was fun so that he can give a surprise and then letting you know a little bit of an insight so that you can be on the 
it's kind of um, Shakespearean dramatic irony. You know, we're watching from mm-hmm. a third person view of uh, Romeo and Juliet. We know that it's not poison. Don't kill yourself at the end. Uh, so it's not a shock ending. You, it's a tragedy because you see it coming and the characters don't. It's kind of like a joke. So if I'm telling you a joke, mm-hmm. I've, we've entered into like a suspended um, new uh, awareness. So I say, OK, let me tell you a joke. Once there was a guy at a bar, right? And he walks in and he tells a bartender, whatever, I don't know, uh, give me a banana. All right, so we've entered into like a new way of communicating. So now you're listening, okay, and looking for clues. Okay, so bar, a guy, bartender, banana. And you're like, okay, is that important? Is that important? Now, if I tell you the story, like, all right, once there was a guy, uh, he's wearing a red shirt. And he goes into the store on uh, Thursday. Um, and he goes to the bartender and says, uh, I want a banana. Now, if I don't go back and tell you about why he's wearing a red shirt or why it's a Thursday, then like what, what is it like? What's, what are you doing? Like that's, that's meaningless information. So it's kind of uh, – and I've just screwed up the joke. You know, you've heard people like, ah, oh, you know, when they tell a story like, um, you know, we, I was going down the street uh, last week. Oh, no, wait. No, was it? It was Tuesday. <laughs> right. No, no. Okay, no. No, it was Wednesday. It was Wednesday. And they're like, I, who cares? Like I don't care. Like done with the story. Like oh, just, oh my God. Uh, and so I think that's part of our job is to know, okay, that's unimportant, that's unimportant. These are the details. I, I know one joke. <laughs> um, there's a mollusk, see, and, and he walks up to a seat. Well, he doesn't walk up, he swims up. Well, actually, the mollusk isn't moving. He's in one place, and then the sea cucumber, well, they I mixed up. Um, you know, Hitchcock also said, my job is to set up a thing and have the audience go, I know where you're going. And then my job is to say, do you? And I think that's a fun game between the filmmaker and the audience to say, okay, here we go. It's subverting expectation. Expectation reality turns in the story and in the twist. And um, I think that's what makes it fun. I think that's the difference between a fun movie and a movie where I'm just telling you what happened. And uh, it's kind of spoon fed. And I'm not, I don't get to participate. I don't have to use my brain because you're just going to tell me the stuff at reality TV. Um, and uh, versus, okay audience let's go we're gonna tell a story and we're gonna and i think the filmmakers we love there's a trust from the audience that the director and the writer they know where they're going so i trust you that you know where you're going so i'm gonna sit in the ride i may not understand what the hell's happening but i know you do (laughs) and so and you're gonna tell me in a cool way um it's kind of like the obligatory scene in the beginning um that old saying of uh if in the beginning of a scene, if you show in your first act, if you show in your first act a gun over the mantle, someone needs to fire that gun in the third act. Like that's your you're making a promise. Mm-hmm. When in the beginning, when you see the shark in Jaws, there's a promise, and really, it's called the obligatory scene. I promise you, we're gonna face off. Come back to this shark. Like that's my promise to you as a as a storyteller. And then do it. And then and Breaking Bad did it so well. I mean, think about the opening mm-hmm. of the of the pilot. Pants are falling out of the sky, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, this RV's flying. A dude's in his underwear. He's got a mask over his face. There's two dead bodies in the back, and their cops are chasing. And you're like, what the hell is happening? Right. And then it stops, and then now you're with Walter White as a teacher. You're like, right. okay. So now what the filmmakers have said this. We're going to end with that crazy scene, and we're going to start here, and let's figure out how we get there. Here's A, and here's C. Let's, the movie is B. Let's figure out the fun way. And you're like, I don't know how you're going to do it. How do you get this mild-mannered dude to be in his underwear driving a, a, a caravan um, in right. his underwear. And that's the fun. Like, that's fun. Like, I think that's, that's, 
that's engaging the audience and that's the the storytelling and not yeah. story you know showing or, yeah for sure and the other thing about breaking bad that i love that kind of speaks to what you just said earlier the statement from hitchcock about making the audience think they know where you're going mm-hmm. and having you as the director of the storyteller say do you mm-hmm. i mean i can't tell you how many times when i was watching breaking bad where all the usual tropes were set up for what should happen mm-hmm. and they totally subvert it with something you just don't expect i mean i mean like everything from bathtubs filled with mm-hmm. molten men falling through the ceiling mm-hmm. to like even how walter white progressed from mild mannered you know science right. teacher to drug king and that's where again you go back to joke telling the mechanics of joke telling are such a simple uh way to to see the storytelling because you set up an expectation and then you subvert it with a different thing and that experience of oh i thought you were going to say this but then you actually said this and it's a different connection produces laughter it produces fear it produces all kinds of feelings and that's our that's the you know we hate the movies where you go oh i figured it out in the second act and it just, it was exactly what I expected. Yeah. Um, it could be great. It could be really well done. But mm-hmm. if it's like, oh, okay, well, that happened the way I thought. Exactly. It basically you're saying, you know, the joke didn't, it's not funny because you didn't, you didn't surprise me. You didn't. And so that means we have to have an understanding of the tropes. Uh, and then it's, you got to set them up and then you got to subvert them. So just then the sea cucumber looks over the mollusk and says, with fronds like these, who needs anemones? <laughs> As filmmakers, we enjoy studying the works of Hitchcock because of his craft and style. Yet, there is one other aspect of Hitchcock as a filmmaker many of you might not have considered, but nonetheless should take heed. Especially if you're looking to make a living at this business. And ironically, it has absolutely nothing to do with cameras, composition, set design, or film scores. Here's Jeff Bays again. As someone that had uh, a really... uh close knowledge of the importance of advertising and publicity and crafting his own brand. Um, I think he saw that as a way to, uh, uh, as part of a brand that he could build, that he was going to become this master of suspense and that he would actually, uh, um, he would actually explain to his critics, like, here's, here's a good shot in my next film and here's what I did, and here's why it works. And he was almost like he was teaching the critics before the movie came out um, about what a genius he was. <laughs> and somehow That's he was right. able to manipulate the press. And he created this, he always had cameos in all of his films. Right, right. And um, he became uh, an, a visual icon, and that's what got the critics talking. Um, this director that would put himself into the films and and uh, the critics would often talk more about him than they would about the actors. Funny. And that's the that's the first time that had ever happened and probably uh, since um, that the director got more uh, attention than the actors. He had a personality. Yeah. Um, and he created that personality because I don't think in in re- in real life he was he was the same person that we see 
on uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents oh, really? and, and those interviews. I think, I think that was a persona that he created. I think that was just the mastery of his branding. Because in real life, he was a lot different. I think there's a few glimpses of that that we see in some of his uh, home movies and family films and things like that, mm -hmm. that he was a lot more kind of uh, jovial and laughing. And um, he was quite the prankster. But I think the, the persona that we see of him in the public is a, a little bit, it's, it's quite different, mm -hmm. I think. He would actually plant stories uh, in the media about his weight. Um, like he would say, you know, I lost 50 pounds. Um, and he would brag about it and say, I lost 50 pounds. Or he would use his kind of obesity as part of that branding. Right. So that if he could get the press talking about his weight, then all of a sudden that image would enter people's minds and, you know, they would think of him. I, th I think he really was a big part of, of promoting himself in, in that sense. And I think that's where we get a lot of, you know, a lot of, when we look back at the history of film, I think we, we get a lot of Hitchcock because Hitchcock wanted it that way. He <laughs> wanted to be known that way, you know. That's John Hess, the man behind FilmmakerIQ.com. I asked John his take on Hitchcock as a self-marketer, and more specifically, why Hitch liked to do those famous cameos of himself in all of his movies. I think we, we talk as filmmakers a lot about style and, and doing what's best for the film, but sometimes there's just there's the element of fun in mm -hmm. it, too. You know, and, yeah. and we, we can't, and I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this because I spent the last three or four years just kind of just plowing through filmmaking stuff, but it's still fun. It still has to be a fun thing to do and 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 i think some of the hitchcock cameos are just something that he's doing for himself he's enjoying you know being part of the scene mm -hmm. it's also kind of gives his fans something to look forward to and right. something to it's also to do with the marketing but it, i mean we can't forget that there is fun in the art too Sir Alfred Hitchcock is perhaps cinema's first true celebrity director. A man with not only a definitive vision and artistic style, but an astute marketer who understood that success in this industry went beyond captivating an audience in the movie theater. Hitch was savvy enough to realize that the show or story started well before anyone put their butts down in those plush velvet seats. So as artists, we can not only be inspired by his craft, but as businessmen and women, we can learn from his public persona and showmanship. May the marketing and promotion of your film or business be Hitchcockian. Stay tuned after the credits, where there will be an informative bonus segment about the making of Hitchcock's famous quote-unquote one-take film, The Rope. Radio Film School is a production of Daredreamer FM. This episode was written and produced by me. Chris Huslidge is our co-producer. It seems to me also a film that takes up, as his films invariably do, certain themes that uh, have been repeated in his uh, life and in his career. We're also a proud member of the Podcastica Network, an independent label of pop culture podcasts with shows like The Walking Dead cast, Game of Microphones, and The Evil Dead cast. You can find all the shows at podcastica.com. 
Well, Dick, before I answer that, I have to go back to your original comment, and that is about one uh, doing similar themes all through one's career. I believe it was someone who said that self-plagiarism is style. <laughs> Just so. This show is made possible by the help of companies like Whipster, the leading video review and collaboration tool and exclusive partner with Vimeo. Use the offer code RADIOFILMSCHOOL, all one word and all lowercase, and you'll get your first seat for just $13 per month. Go to Whipster.io and start collaborating like a pro. I've made it a practice over the years to put a film down on paper. People say to me, don't you ever improvise on the set while you are shooting? And I say, certainly not. I would prefer to improvise in the office. It's and cheaper anyway, isn't it? It's cheaper and it's quieter. And uh, after all, musicians are allowed to put their composition down on paper. And architects can put a building on paper. So why not a film? We've also been supported by Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. Learn the patent-pending storytelling process that helps Still Motion earn five Emmys and teach all around the world. Go to learnstory.org and use the offer code RADIO and you'll get $47 off lifetime access. Be sure to check out the blog post for this episode to see the videos mentioned, as well as links to the music, which, except for the movie clips, of course, was all curated from freemusicarchive.org. But suspense is very different. Suspense comes out of giving an audience information. You tell the audience that there's a bomb under that chair and will go off in five minutes and make them wait. Now, I want to warn you that sometime during the bonus section, I injected a screaming cackle that might make you jump. I'm not going to tell you how far into the bonus clip you can expect to hear the cackle. Let's see if you're brave enough to listen till the end. Remember, until next time, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Hitchcock's The Rope is famous for being practically one long take. But it was shot back in the days when film was, well, shot on film. And film reels were only so long. Jeff Bays and Forrest Day offer some insight into the making of this film and how it was done. And at the very end, we have two additional deleted scenes about Hitchcock with my interviews with John Hess and Adam Westbrook that I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy. The rope is, a, is an interesting one because it's all a continuous shot uh, is for it the when- most part. Oh, for the most part. Yeah. For the most part, there's a couple of there's a couple of cuts uh, that are used for dramatic emphasis, but um, you know he still uses the, it's close ups, it's wide shots, it's uh, tracking shots, but it's all within a single take. So it's it's fascinating. The camera work in that is fascinating um, because there's a presence that you feel. And I think it's it's part of the omnipresence of his branding and and his persona as a director. And um, we know that he's behind the scenes manipulating what's on the screen. So we feel this presence and even his camera moves, even though he's not the one that's actually 
on the camera. I mean, he's not running mm-hmm. the camera. He's just sitting in a chair in the corner. <laughs> but for, there's something about his camera moves um, that feel like it's him pointing things out to us. Right. And um, and Rope is a really good study of that because it's every second of that film is meticulously planned. It's something that even today is considered uh, a cinematic art. Yeah. You know, it's not something you just do offhandedly. Yeah, yeah. You know, Birdman was famous for, you know, being this one continuous shot, but, you know, people in the know know that there were some, like, digital trickery made to just make it appear that way. Uh, was that the same thing for, uh, do you know if that was the same thing for Rope? Oh, well, there were 10 minutes takes right right um, because that's how long the film reel was so they had to restock the camera every 10 minutes so uh what they did was they kind of hid the cuts in uh uh, by zooming into someone's back sure but there's a there's there's only two cuts i believe in that film that are actually dramatic uh there's one uh, (laughs) at the end uh when jimmy stewart is suddenly starting to become suspicious and uh so we cut to jimmy stewart's face and we hold on his face while he's listening to the conversations around him and that's that's an emphasis on the fact that he's starting to uh suspect that Mm -hmm. something is uh something has happened here so that's interesting so then if you're going to meticulously plan a movie back in the day where you only had 10 minute reels to be appear as one long shot wouldn't you have like if you know okay this is where i need to push in because i'm gonna hide a cut like wouldn't you have to know that okay these next x number of scenes are going to last exactly nine and a half minutes or whatever it is right offhand like how would they be able to do that is it or is it is it in rehearsal or yeah it's it's rehearsal got it they approached that film pretty much like a stage play so that everything was ready to go you know, before the cameras rolled and they knew exactly where everybody was going to be standing and they knew how long the scenes were. And it was, it was planned out really well in advance. And, um, they had to re reshoot most of the film actually, because they got the exposure wrong. Um, didn't realize it until a week later and they had to reshoot most of the film on. And you got to remember when you watch these episodes, or, or anything, any movie or any TV show for that matter, from back in this era, you know, we've been spoiled with with phones that you can take video with and right. uh, small cameras. And, you know, I mean, I'm sitting in a spare room now with a nice RE20 microphone and, uh, and, and nice headphones and a, and a MacBook computer. This is stuff that he didn't have. You know, if you wanted to make a movie, you needed a camera that was as big as a room. Like when they, sh- when, if you ever saw any behind the scenes shots of rope, it was like this camera, like the cameraman sat on it and it was like on railroad tracks. Yeah. It was this huge camera um, that, you know, and that's what they had to work with. And to be able to make um, the stuff that he did with what, with the old technology is amazing because people probably wouldn't have the, the know-how or the wherewithal to do that nowadays with what we have with mm-hmm. a small camera that you don't have to pull walls apart to move it in place. Um, it's really interesting, actually. I, I uncovered this book in the library about, I don't know, eight months ago. Mm-hmm. 
And um, and it showed actually Hitchcock had quite an interesting division of labour when he was um, working on a film. Um, so what would today be the job of a screenwriter, he, in well, certainly for some of his early films, was divided among three people. He would divide so, it among three people? Yeah. So he would hire someone called a constructionist. Um, and I'd never heard of this term before. I don't think, I think it's been completely forgotten. But there was someone called a story constructionist. And often they were a playwright or a dramatist who just understood the, the nuts and bolts of a story, the major plot points and, you know, knew how their dramatic arc worked. And they would come in first once he had an idea of what the story was and they would plot out um, the, the bare bones of the story. He would then take the story from there and he would storyboard himself. Hmm. Hitchcock always did his storyboards very elaborately and in detail. And only then, once he'd storyboarded and worked out what the storyboards were capable of, would he then pass it to a dialogue person to basically fill in the gaps. The trailer to Psycho is oh, okay. really unique. Oh, wait. wait. And, and it is six minutes of Hitchcock just kind of walking you through the set. It is really? bizarre. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm talking about as far as his marketing, as far as you know himself. You know, it starts off with him standing in front of the the Bates Hotel, Bates Motel, and the, the 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 text on the screen says the fabulous Mr. Hitchcock will now take you on a tour of the set of his new horror film Psycho, huh. or something like that. And then he says, okay, you know, in, in this house, uh, maybe I'll spare you the, the Hitchcock and <laughs> here in this house. Right. But, anyway, but uh, yeah, he's he, he's kind of and he goes through it, and it's very and the the, the tone of the trailer is is fascinating in that it bounces between this light jovial you know like the that the theme song for his tv show the the, the right. was the dance of the puppets or mm-hmm. dance of the marionette yeah so it's a it bounce between the jovial english british proper sounding and then this darker horror brooding kind of music um so even in the trailer for psycho he, he's already kind of establishing himself as you know as this purveyor of 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 uh, horror and horror filmmaking <laughs> Hmm? Ah!